Welcome to Books and Beyond with your hosts, Karen and Luisa. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations, and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl, and she works in a library, yeah, standing there behind the counter. Kia ora, Karen. Kia ora, Alison. And kia ora, Louisa. Kia ora, Alison. Look, it's great to be back here. We're here fresh from the Auckland Writers' Festival, which has just finished for another year, 2019, of course. But um, I really feel as though the three of us are still in festy mode. And we've been um, comparing stories and anecdotes from our time at the sessions and we thought we'd share some of them with you people today so um louisa now i know you went to more events than than both of us put together i think (laughs) so well done yes we are on a bit of a high after the uh, festival i know and yes i i did attend more uh, sessions than i intended to i had a fantastic time i think um i didn't go out and see all the writers publicized as the must see um instead my son and i had a very special mum and son weekend hanging out at the sessions that just interested us so I had to do a little compromise with my um, university aged son uh, who studied IT and now studying teaching so you can see where this is leading Uh, so the um, the the must-see session that we both wanted to see was A Sporting Nation. Um, it kicked off on a Saturday at 2.30pm in, uh, in good sporting uh, tradition. Um, clever because, you know, it was it is a traditional sporting start time for big events in New Zealand. The All Blacks uh, at Eden Park always used to, before uh, digital television came along, uh, started um, and marketing and commercialism and all that. Uh, always started at 2.30 and club rugby and first 15 rugby still does. So, um, but but then I thought, well, it's a bit of an odd time, you know, because um, anyone interested in sport is at sport and not at the Writers' Festival. But anyway, we were there and the session was full. Um, so three writers were chaired by Jennifer Curtin, um, not known to me, a public uh, policy professor, um, writer, professor. The um, panel, Greg Ryan and Jeff Watson, uh, are known to me again. <laughs> um, both academics who have individually published several books about sport rugby, cricket, hockey and and they've co-authored Sport and New Zealanders A History, so that's their their latest book that was um, on sale at the uh, Writers' Festival and is available from your library so um, the third panellist was Madeline Chapman now she is known to us because she co-authored the Stephen Adams book the New Zealand um, basketball player uh, My Life My Fight so um, and it was she who just made the session oh my goodness she is so funny <laughs> she was <laughs> she was great at uh, cracking the funnies in a very deadpan style and um, yeah she she just told us what she thought so the um, <laughs> um, so they started off talking about quantifying the funding of sport to in our nation um, and um, the, the men thought it was a, a, a good balance kind of thing and you know we get good value from our investment and then 
Madeline came in with her thoughts uh, <laughs> and uh, they talked briefly about amateur versus professional sport uh, the boys thought it was um, in New Zealand we try to make participation accessible to everyone and then Madeline came in with her thoughts <laughs> and uh, actually she told this really fantastic story about Ruia Morrison uh, from Rotorua who played at Wimbledon in the 1950s mm. um, an unheard of story until recently really well to mainstream New Zealand I think um, and how New Zealand, as a New Zealand singles champion she qualified to go to Wimbledon but it, without the funding without the support um, of uh, family and well um, of the sporting um, bodies um, they fundraised um, Hoani Waititi actually organised a fundraising gig at the town hall and yeah so she got the her money to go and represent us at uh, Wimbledon I think more than once actually um, so you know the moral of the story is well you know um, no t- sport in New Zealand is not equitable to for to everyone um, so then the talk ventured into women's sport and um, is this equitable and the boys thought well yes we've made great strides and then Madeline came in with her story about how she's really been wanting to uh, purchase merchandise back uh, black the black ferns is the New Zealand women's rugby team how she wanted to purchase merchandise for with black black ferns branding on it um, instead, she can only purchase an all-black shirt with, with a woman's fit. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, and she was told, if there's demand, um, they'll make it. And she said, well, how would they know? So um, that was a really good story. There was a, a story about the Prime Minister getting involved, and she does now have a Black Ferns woman's player's shirt, but she said the point's been missed here, you know. So, mm-hmm. um so yeah. if they don't make it, how do they know if there's demand? That's, That's right. right. Yeah, that yeah. was her point. And she did, you know, it's great to have that shirt, but, you know, the rest of us want a shirt as well. We can't all have the player's shirt, you know. <laughs> we actually sure have to do. be able to play yes. rugby to get that and shirt. perhaps the entire audience at the show, at the session, wants the shirt now. So there's <laughs> yeah. probably 200 people. So <laughs> Exactly. So, yeah, she's generated demand. So um, great, um, great discussion, and I love to kick us attitude and her wisecrack so she made it i think yeah um karen you've got uh, what did you get to see then at the festival well i went to hear tina macchiretti and stephanie johnson and the event was called um in that matchmaking way there's a one event for two different writers it was called home and away um so this matchmaking on the part of the festival was tina's novel about a maori's experience in 19th century england where among other things he was turned into a living exhibit i don't know if you've read her book um it's really interesting and with stephanie's non-fiction book about five new zealand writers and artists in 20th century australia so even if, you know, a couple of these writers and artists were a bit exhibitionist and one is um, described as having um, enjoyed wearing leopard skin attire, I wasn't really sure I saw the match here. But anyway, it's what the match was really in the end was that they were two smart and very gifted women. And the chair was luckily fairly unobtrusive. Um, 
inobtrusive. Nick Lowe, and he was trying very hard to make it work. Um, to my own taste, festival, maybe take notice. I would have just preferred half an hour for each of them delving into their book. But you can do a lot in half hours. We show in our show, don't you think? Mm. Um, rather than this sort of ping pong game. So one question, and then you have to have both people have to respond. But... Um, Tina Macaretti, so her book is The Imaginary Lives of James Poneke, and it's nominally about the boy James Poneke, as I said, Maori boy, traveling to London in Victorian times, um, and as as she said at the festival, it's actually about his personal journey to find out who he is. It's not about going to London, what happens in London, um, in a world which was very changing. And she emphasized that because there was a lot of questions about comparing his home, because it was called Home and Away. <laughs> so he was at home in New Zealand and he was away in London. And she said, actually, the home, very intelligently, the home that he had in New Zealand was also changing so much in those times with the arrival of the Pakia that it was not actually necessarily the home that he knew either that one. So so um, adding a whole other layer. And when they, she was asked, um, why does he have plural lives? Why is it the imaginary lives of James Ponehe? And she said, um, well, it's because it's a book about the performance of identity. So she says the lives that he's imagining. And this was a concept which really set me spinning. I thought that was so wonderful, the performance of identity. Yeah, what a great line. Yeah, isn't but, it? Yeah. So I'm really proud to say that Auckland Libraries has just nominated, you heard it here first, this book for the Dublin Impact Literary Award. And I was able to announce this to Tina in the signing line where I took um, a copy, our research center copy. So... Um, so that was great, wonderful encounter. She's going to come on the show, hopefully, if we can find a time when she comes back to Auckland. So Stephanie Johnson, who I'm also hoping will come on the show, if we can work out a time, um, has had one of her novels also nominated by Auckland Libraries, maybe more than one, I think, for the Dublin Impact Literary Award. So her very funny, sharp, um, well-known to New Zealanders novels. But her new book is nonfiction. And I haven't read it, but I actually now I'm quite intrigued, and because I would like to know more about Jean Devaney, the feminist novelist. Anyone heard of Jean Devaney? See, well, I hadn't. This is why we're, we we're to all nodding, mm. uh, shaking our heads, not nodding. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, Jean Devaney, the feminist novelist who battles with communism, which gave Stephanie the chance to drop a splendid John A. Lee saying, "There is no grave as deep as the Camo Party." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Dulcie Deemer. Anyone heard of Dulcie Deemer? The bohemian right, right, she heads shaking here. The bohemian writer and libertine known for dressing in leopard skin, about whom Stephanie had her own splendid line, matching, in my opinion, John A. Lee. It's hard to find her books now. A few dusty copies in the Auckland Library stacks. <laughs> so I checked, and it's true. We do have a few copies. I didn't check for the dust. Uh, <laughs> I hope to, uh, we'll slip by that one. So, um, yeah, I just thought that this was um, two, like I said, um, gifted, smart women and um, was a great event for me. So that was my first one. And how about you, Alison? Oh, well, um, I went to a session that I just loved so much, um, presented by the author Joanne Drayton. Uh, and uh, she was presenting about her, her recently published book, Hudson and Hall's The Food of Love. 
And um, just a day or so before the session, it had been announced that Joanne had won the General Nonfiction Prize at the Ockham Book Awards for 2019. So it was lovely. Um, she got a huge round of applause from the audience as she, as she took the stage. So Hudson and Halls were uh, really our first uh, celebrity chef duo. Um, the first were, celebrity chefs at all, maybe. Oh, maybe yeah, not. No, um, there were a couple of... Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, yeah, single, yeah. singular ones yeah, yeah, yeah. that had perhaps influenced them. But these really um, made, it, made a splash on our primetime New Zealand TV in the 1970s and 80s. They taped about 300 shows. Um, and her book about them is essentially a love story. Uh, they were two men who met at a party in Auckland in 1962 and their love was instant. It was profound and long-lasting, but it was ultimately devastating. So, you know, they navigated highs and, and lows. Um, speaking of navigation, they, they managed to sort of make their way in a, in a post-war New Zealand society that was still pretty narrow-minded and parochial. They were real outsiders. They were others. And I think this is what always drew me towards them because I have this fascination with other otherness particularly in writing. Um, fortunately, they, they found a liberal-minded circle of friends in Auckland um, at the time, in the 60s, and they became well-known for their hugely elaborate parties. They were wonderful, flamboyant hosts who cooked up a storm wherever they went. Um, but what they knew or they discovered and, and demonstrated that was that people make connections and friendships through good food. And uh, we were saying earlier that I, that was a change in New Zealand, wasn't it? Well, it's interesting because we, when we did Auckland Anniversary Day and I was talking about the book about old Grey Lynn in settlement times, and it was said that nobody invited anybody over to dinner. It was just unheard of in those days. It was just a really interesting concept I had not realised. Yeah, so I, I guess before these days, food was about nutrition or fuel wasn't it that's that's fuel to work on yeah, fuel farm. so you could work yeah. yes so we anyway, to be exported yes well, well that's true yeah. yes yes um so the research that she put into this book has been meticulous and it was really quite a, a feat because so much of the primary and secondary source material has been lost over the years um, the diaries and letters written by Peter and David, many of them had been destroyed by their families, uh, perhaps due to st the stigma about mm. being gay. And can you believe it? The TV network taped over most of the 300 shows. So that was a really analogue thing to do, wasn't it? We, yeah. re we reused the, the tape. But um, Hudson and Halls hold a really important place in New Zealand social history. Um, a, a good couple of generations of Kiwis in the 70s and 80s saw their representation of otherness on our TV screens and um, grew up knowing that it being different could somehow be okay and you could make it work. Now, um, at the end, Joanne had a wonderful anecdote 
about them because even in death they managed to be outrageous and I love this story they, they had a wish that their ashes would be mixed with the ashes of their two Burmese cats and they wanted to be scattered amongst the daffodils in Green Park, London and this was something that was expressly forbidden by the London authorities so they managed to break the rules even at the end and, and have the last laugh and um, then after the anecdote, um, Joanne talked about love and um, the enduring love between two soulmates. And um, it was really, really sad because they had such a, a tragic end. Um, and there, at the end of the session, there wasn't a dry eye in, in the house. We all shed some tears. But um, about two, two men who are really part of our the fabric of our society. Um, if you don't mind, mm, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to add, so when you said, you know, the devastating story of their love and the tragic end, I think it's important for people who have not read the book. I'm not sure if everybody knows this. It's not because their love affair went awry. It's because it was so strong and it lasted until the end of the first one to go's life and then the terrible effect it had on the second one oh, yes. to go. The, the love was stronger than the, anything, wasn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. and the love lasted um yeah to and beyond death mm. the final chapters of those books are just so touching i'm sure that um if it was talked about if joanne talked about it at the show did she talk about that yes she yeah. did yes and in fact it brought her to tears yeah, too there you go. because yeah. of and i'm sure a lot tragedy. of the audience it did to me yeah you know, just reading it yeah. me too yeah. yes Oh, well, thanks for yeah. sharing that. I haven't read the book, and I'm not sure I'm going to be so brave enough now because I'm a real <laughs> dairy person <laughs> when I'm reading. It's uh, <laughs> sometimes, um, you know, it, it's touching as, um, you know, I, I, I cry at a far less tragic far less tragic scene so thank you I actually wanted I was wondering about the significance of Green Park in London as well was that somewhere mm. where they had spent a lot of time I uh, think one it of was them, near yeah. where they lived but it was just so they would break the rules I think <laughs> really, that was the <laughs> there's also a photo in the book of them scattering the ashes um into the uh, potted plant in their favourite restaurant. Oh, a bit yes. of the ashes, bit of the ashes. Just to be there forever. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's, you know, it's that real mix of the camp and the underlying really sorrowful reality of some, of how harsh life can be, but then, you know, put a brave face the and brave be funny. Face. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was they really were good. very mischievous, weren't they? I do remember the, the television shows. Yeah. So, <laughs> Louisa, I think it's over to you. Wow. Okay. So something a little bit more... Um, dry perhaps but actually not really so i read somewhere that the festival features 160 writers and 42 of them are from overseas so i'm going overseas now uh, my son and i saw anna rosling ronland present factfulness on sunday and um i'm going to use an odd adjective um considering we're talking about facts and data analysis it was delightful um, so Anna uh, presented the data and facts with so much enthusiasm uh, so much charm um, her, um, her her Swedish Swedish accent so lyrical and uh, even at one stage her daughter popped out on her young daughter popped out on stage to help her uh, with the um, PowerPoint presentation uh, and there was a little bit of a misunderstanding and it didn't work so well. It was very cute. It was fun. Um, so Anna continues on from the book to fa 
Factfulness, which has been a very popular read. Um, it's co-written with her husband and father-in-law, um, Hans uh, Rosling, who unfortunately died of cancer before the book was published. So, um, like the book, she points out how general assumptions about the state of the world um, are in fact often wrong, and the world is better than we think. Uh, so it's a very uplifting kind of chat about data and facts. Um, so, and how the assumptions come from the media's need to be dramatic and so um, you know the media sensationalizing what's negative and ignoring uh, what's good um, so her frustration she talks about their frustration that no matter how they presented the data and telling the facts to the world uh, the media kept winning with these assumptions mm-hmm. so I don't know if you uh, know the book is uh, uh, you know um, but it starts off asking the reader there's 13 myth-busting questions um, relating to the sort of um, their knowledge of the world. Uh, so for um, for example, the first question is, in all uh, low-income countries across the world, how many girls finish primary school? And the multiple choice a, B or C, A is 20%, B is 40, C is 60. So do we do we want to have a go at guessing or shall I just read out Go the for answer? it, Alison, because yeah. I've already failed one of her questions. Yes, I would have <laughs> failed too because I, I went for the middle one. Okay, 40. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the assumptions. Yeah. Are, yeah. So the answer is 60, so um, higher than we think. And I think also it's, it's asking a question about how many girls finish primary school. So perhaps it would be quite a different stat if they, you know, if it was a question about uh, finishing secondary school. But anyway, um, so uh, the Roslings use the data set as a foundation for all their analysis. Um, so she showed how New Zealand schools better than Australia, for example. Um, uh, but they have a sample set from monkeys where they've chosen uh, the A, B or C answers based on what bananas. Um, and funny that they are actually um, do quite well in, um, in the sort of, uh, what do you call it, the um, sample set groups. Uh, monkeys are right up there. So they're the benchmark. Um, so, um, but what's happening beyond the book has um, really interested me. They've... Um, they're now moving into digital visualisation. Well, they always had with their graphs, but now they're using images. Uh, so they've sent photographers to all corners of the world um, to capture images so we can see um, how people live around the world. So where do we go to the toilet? How do we cook? Where we sleep? And um, these images are really quite powerful to demonstrate the, the you know, the impact. Well, that they have high, it was a high impact for me, um, the difference between how poor live and how the rich live. And so um, they're having a lot more success with the, the, these kind of images. So now they've got this um, really interesting, um, it's morphed into dollar, what is it, what do they call it now? Um, dollar, anyway, a new project where families from around the world, they're trying to capture 10 families from each country to send in their images of how they live. And so, it's Dollar Street, sorry. So they don't have anyone from New Zealand, so if you want to join in the community, like Bill Gates has, there's a photo of him brushing his teeth in his spacious bathroom, uh, you can go onto their website, dollarstreet.org and submit uh, your photo. So I think Anna succeeded in her message of the um, 
Rosling way. I really admire their cause and um, it, it can't be easy to present data, so much complex and variable data in such a simple way. So I take my hat off to them and yeah, it was very good. Anyone else? Well, yes, I'm I'm here raring to go with mine, which is um, that I'm going to go offshore as well. And um, it's also another example of that otherness that you were talking about, Alison. So take this. I was being asked to be less complicated when, in fact, that was just who I was. So that is Alexander Chi. Alexander Chi was my this year's phenomenon, happens at least one phenomenon like this every year you want it to be there of seeing a writer in person and realizing you had them completely wrong this is a major factor of um, writers festivals for me so maybe because i'm always so opinionated and of course that opinion in my case was not formed by having read one of his books because i didn't pick up his books because of that opinion so self-defeating but it was hearing about uh, say why in my defense uh always hearing about him being part of the brooklyn literary scene and in my experience with the Brooklyn literary scene, less is more. <laughs> so people who have email addresses with bagel in them or people who get their facts wrong because they're dashing out of, uh, you know, an uh, opinion piece for the millions. And, um, and in general, I just sort of hate what I realized. I just hate any literary scene that's contemporary. I, I love, you know, Paris between the wars, um, you know, Bloomsbury. They, they have to have a patent of the past. If they're contemporary, it's very easy to be irked. But um, anyway, so, you know, you don't have to hear them being interviewed if they're in the past. But actually, Alexander's interview was absolutely wonderful. So um, in the Spiegel tent, there he was. And he was of a, I walked in and totally unexpectedly, not as he appears on the cover of the book. He was a man of a certain age, very dignified, very thoughtful. And right off, he won me over by agreeing with me about Tina Brown and what she did to long form writing when she became the editor of The New Yorker. So he had this quote, he said, that was going around. Tina says it's too text heavy. And um, he, so the auto, he was there. The show was called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. That's the name of his last book. Can't remember what the something. They would have picked some clever name um, for his show. And um, he talked about the autobiographical novel being an archaeology of the self, which I thought was really great. So um, I'm reading the book now, and people say. In the book, he talks about how people ask him, why didn't you just write a memoir? Which is also having a time as the, or as the chair of the session said, having a bit of a moment, um, you know, memoirs and autobiography. And he said, um, I actually had to write a fictional, I had to write the novel to present the truth that I saw because I had a series of boxes, but that wasn't actually, didn't turn out to be the best way to present the truth that I wanted to share. And he needed to make other boxes. So, um, yeah, so this is this is the um, this is my shout out, Alexander Chi. Forgive me, I didn't get a time to be in the send, in the signing line <laughs> to tell him all this, but I don't think he would have. I'm not sure it would have really made sense to him because um, he didn't know that I didn't think he was what he was. <laughs> anyway, I my last thing is I want to do a shout-out about his great turn at question and answer time. So Q&A time, everybody knows it can be really annoying. Someone gets up and asks, you know, really, really long questions all about them. But it is a writer's festival, and they've paid their money to go there and make this moment of personal contact. And I think a little bit of compassion is um, is worthwhile. And so Nick Lowe and his opening to the um, Home and Away, you know, made this long speech about now you don't get to ask three things which are don't are not really a question. And the woman next to me got up 
to ask a question and of Alexander Chi. And I could actually feel this urgency on her part. It was like emanating from her. And um, he was four rows away from her. And evidently, he could feel it too. Or he's just a compassionate, um, creative person, as you say. And he, um, she asked a long question about her difficulties in writing about trauma. And did he have any advice? He gave her four different pieces of advice. And then at the end of all that, he wished her in a really heartfelt way, good luck. And this is that, you know, that special moment that you get at the festival. I was just thinking, this is so great to see this happen. Yeah, what a generous um, mm, exactly. person. Yeah, yeah, really, he really, really generous. Um, and I was reminded of, you know, Gloria Steinem when I saw her at one of the Writers' Festival. And when the, her time came at the question and answer, she said to the audience, she said, this is your chance. Here's the mic. Grab the mic. Say something. Tell me something. Well, I was there. I remember that. Do you remember that? that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fabulous. So that was my moment, but I'm sure that you all, that's, you know, one of my favorite things about festivals, but I'm sure both of you also have something that's favorite for what happened to you at the festival. Yeah, well, for me, walking up the hill to my bus stop, I reflected on how writers are such great thinkers, you know, and how the festival allows us to see and share in that thinking and knowledge. I really appreciate it. It makes us think and share are so much more too doesn't it? Mm, it? Yeah I like how you've said that and I loved that emotional connection that you gain with with the authors. Yeah another mm. thing I really like is that sort of community collective feeling that the festival has when everyone's sitting together and I remember in the Birds of New Zealand talk when he was showing some of the amazing drawings and you get this ooh from everybody together um, and I also have a takeaway phrase from um, so the one that stand out for me from the whole festival was from that same talk on birds of new zealand for millions of years this is jeff norman the author of birds of new zealand for millions of years birds are blown over from australia and sometimes stick on this little piece of fly paper in the middle of the ocean <laughs> oh that's <laughs> about you yeah. well i took away a, a, my new rule for life and that is um if in doubt just whip up a sweet avocado pie. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. So this would be our sweet avocado pie yeah. for the day. Goodbye. Whipped up a recipe from the Auckland Writers Festival. <laughs> and um, we hope that you've enjoyed it. We'd like to shout out all the people who worked so hard at the festival. Oh, Lisa was saying this earlier. Wonderful. Yeah, no question was too hard for these people. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. well, wonderful experience. And um, back to next experiences. Um, onward to next experiences. So we'll see you all next week. Kakite ano? Kakite. Hadada. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and... Catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day, every day, every day.